Hello, hello. My name is Ben Hilsinger, and this is the Big Fat Snare Drum Podcast. Today's guest is Brody Simpson, and we talk about the top five drumming moments that played a huge part in the development of his sound. Brody's feel and sense of pocket within a pocket are unmatched in my opinion, and I don't yet think I'm comfortable making it public how much time I've spent looping Brody's videos. Needless to say, if you don't know him, I'm super excited that you stumbled across this episode because his perspective on groove and creating drum parts is a masterclass in many ways. All right, please enjoy. This episode is sponsored by Waves Audio. This podcast would take me so much longer to edit if it wasn't for the Waves Vocal Writer plugin. It rides the fader in real time and keeps both my and my guest's audio at a consistent level without the need to overcompress. I also use an endless amount of their plugins for my musical recordings, such as Abbey Road Saturator, CLA Drums, the SSL channel. Check them out at waves.com. All right. <laughs> All right, I'm here with Brody Simpson. Thanks for being on the podcast, man. Hey, thanks for having me, man. It's, uh, yeah, I'm really stoked to do it. We have you on to talk about your top five-ish. Again, we can have more than five. I think every guest we've had on so far has not played by the rules, so that's okay. But uh, just the top five flourishes, drumming moments that crept into your playing and that you still feel a part of your playing today. So I'll just let you start with number one, and I'll shut up. Yeah, cool. All right, sweet. Um, man, I struggled with this. It's been so long since I like, like I've never really sought out music for the drums at all. Mm -hmm. I never, you know, I never really kind of, I, I could never listen to music based on the drums, right? I had to actually love the song. Sure. Um, so that's, I think that's probably more so where these are, except for maybe one or two. But the first one, uh, Matt Johnson uh, on Love You Should Have Come Over from Jeff Buckley. Okay. Man, that song is just... Ugh, it's just everything. It's just so ridiculously good. This I'm actually... like A lot of these are kind of going back to my roots. They're not what people see me do on Instagram, basically. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, man. Uh, Love You Should Have Come Over from about the four-minute mark. And I, like, I tried to like whittle it down to a smaller section, but it's basically from the kind of bridge section pretty much to the end of the tune it's just yeah i mean have a listen and <laughs> okay yeah let's do that and then we'll discuss yeah. Yeah. It's just so... <laughs> All you can do is say yeah and laugh. <laughs> Man, it's like, I mean, that record's like, I mean, top 10 of all time for me as as an album, but drumming performances as well. Tonally, not, like, I don't know, some of the tones are kind of raw because like, they've got a little bit of a badass thing on a few of the tunes, um, but the tones are so refined and there's so much clarity in them. Mm-hmm but they're not lacking anything. They don't feel kind of like overly jazzy and trying to be too nice. Like it's just such a great combination of like all the things that that record without those drum tones would not yeah. be the same record for me. I mean, the songs would still be amazing, but Matt's playing is just out of control. Good. And those fills, especially as it, it climaxes, it kind of gets, it gets busier, but there's never a single thing that I find intrusive about it. Nothing ever steps on a vocal. Everything just punctuates a vocal so beautifully, and he grabs those hits on the way down. And Man, it's just, 
I, I remember the first, because I kind of got into that record actually reasonably late. Like I didn't, I uh, probably got into it around 2003, 2004. Mm. So 10 years too late, really. Um, <laughs> and I was just like, this is just out of control. Like I've just never heard anyone feel and sound and feel and sound that good and be so appropriate and complimentary. And oh man, just absolutely love that record so much. And his playing is just out of control. No, I'm with you. And that, I mean, there's parts of it that are quote unquote busy when it comes to just yeah. like subdivision, but it doesn't sound busy at all. He knows exactly all. when to do little flourishes and stuff. Yeah. And it's just, um, everything's phrased in a way that is like, it sounds kind of calculated and and thought out and, and very much kind of mapped to the rest of the arrangement, but it also... And man, this is a tough balance to find when you're tracking something. It also feels off the cuff. Mm -hmm. And that's like, I struggle with that. Like making something feel off the cuff, but it's the 20th take. And like, you definitely know exactly every note you're playing. But I literally was doing that on a session yesterday. Um, (laughs) Just like, yeah, it's just got to feel more random. And I'm like, yeah, but I've done this 20 times now. It's like, there's a part in my head. It's like really difficult to share. Yeah. So I actually took a lesson with Matt. Out of Amazing. respect for him, I won't tell where it is, but we had a lockout, or I had a lockout a few years ago in, in Los Angeles, and randomly he was in the lockout next to me. And so wow. I took a lesson with him, and we were, in, we were just talking about, like, he's like, well, let me see your, like, what, what kit you're working with, you know, next door. And it was one of those ones where you have to, um, you can bring your snare and your cymbals, but the kit itself is like the room kit. And I walked in and I was like, yeah, this is it. It's like this old Ludwig, I think like a standard, but it was not taken care of. And I was like, yeah, it just sounds bad. So it's, you know, I was being a curmudgeon. Like, it's hard to stay motivated. And he's like, well, let me sit down behind it. And he picks up this attitude snare that was there and he plays it and it just sounds amazing. And I was just <laughs> playing it and it sounded like dog shit. And I was like, okay. Yeah, I think uh, there's definitely some mojo in those, in those fingers. Um, he's just... I don't know, there's something about his playing that just spoke to me immediately when I heard it. And, um, I don't, like I say, I don't, I don't listen for the drums in a tune. It's not something I've ever really been interested in. But obviously, you know, if it's that good, it stands out and you start to take notice of what's actually happening in a way where it doesn't stand out and distract you from anything. You just go, some real shit is happening here and I should probably pay attention to it. No, and I, I 100% agree. And I have used this metaphor, I think, on the podcast before, but a good drummer is like a good set designer or a good costume designer. If if the, the clothes and the set just make sense, it doesn't distract you, but you stay in the 100%. world, that's what a yep. good recording drummer is. You know, it's if you're noticed, you're doing something wrong sometimes. I, ha- I had this discussion. I think it kind of plays to the same point. I had this discussion with the artist I was working with yesterday. And I'm like, the whole idea behind this recording thing is like, people are going to listen to this and most of them aren't going to understand any of the technical aspects of the recording and mixing side of things, or even the technical aspects of, of the, the musical side of things, you know, the theoretical aspects and whatnot. But what you're trying to do at all times is not give them any reason to not quite like something and not know why they don't like it. Because if someone hears something and they don't, there's something about it they don't like and they know what it is about it they don't like, they can maybe push that aside and be like, oh, well, it's just, you know, it's just the fact that the snare's a bit weird. Yeah, that was a choice. But, but and, otherwise, yeah, yeah but yeah. otherwise, you know, tune's rad. There's definitely records like that that I listen to, like some early Shins records where I'm just like, I love these songs. I really can't get around these drum tones. But Interesting, okay. I know it's just the drum tones that are distracting me kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's a big thing, man. Like just having everything not be distracting is such a great way to, to approach the entire game. Yeah. And this can kind of go into one of my questions I want to talk to you about, because you have some fun mic choices. Like you, you'll you put like a, a D112 on your side snare, which is more of a bass drum microphone. And yep. you'll put like a 7B under the ride. Is there, is, is, is one of the ones on your list, is one of the options on your list kind of where you got weird drum ideas from? Or where did that kind of bold choice come from? Not really. Like, I feel like I, I learned a lot of the technical side of the recording stuff just from YouTube. Well, I mean, firstly, from buying a studio with my business partner and going, holy shit, I need to learn how to record stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the, a lot of the mic choices are just kind of from messing around. The, the D112 on snare thing came from 
having because I, I I use a D on twelve in my floor tom pretty much all the time, mm-hmm. and I would go to do a video and I'd be like, oh, I don't want a floor tom. I'll seek a snare over there and just leave the D on 12 there. Okay. And the first time I did it, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to have to mix the shit out of this to make this a thing. And then <laughs> sure. I listened back to it and I went, actually, no, I'm not. This is fantastic. Like, I totally, absolutely love this. Because um, there's a different kind of pressure uh, to, like, a bass instrument microphone. Like, they just, they kind of handle a transient response maybe a little differently to something like an SM7 or an SM57. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but that's kind of how I feel about it. Um also, they have just a much more pleasing um, uh, cymbal bleed rejection as well than you know oh, than okay. even a fifty-seven. Yeah, yeah, it, it just feels more natural, especially the D one twelve. I'm actually like, I'm, I'm probably going to do it pretty soon. Is actually buy two or three more D one twelves so that I can use them on my toms all the time. You know, regardless of how many toms I have set up, and then also <laughs> inside the kick drum because I do love them. It's been relegated to a floor tom mic for so long, but it's one of my favorite bass drum mics. It gets a really bad rap for bass drum from a lot of people, but it gets the, the basketball effect. But that's just if you don't know how to. And I, I include myself in yeah. this if you don't know how to tune your drums that well. Oh man, <laughs> I actually recently started embracing the whole basketball thing. I'm just like, <laughs> I want an open bass drum tone. I don't want to put stuff in there. I don't, you know, I don't want to shorten the note, but I need to put something in there to get rid of the basketball thing. I did some, like, a few drum and bass things a little while ago. And I'm just like, I'm just going to use the the basketball thing. It's going to be a, a weird top end effect on the kick drum sound. That's that's totally cool. Distort the shit out of it with the tape tape saturation plug in, and all of a sure. sudden it's a vibe. Sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's a life lesson right there, man. <laughs> oh man, uh, just everything, everything is tape saturation on it. Absolutely everything. But yeah, like the the bass drum thing, the the D one twelve thing on bass drum. I think people um, people want it to sound like a D six, and yep. it's not a D six. And mm-hmm. the worst thing about a D six is the second you put it on a drum, you're painted into a corner of I'm going to have nothing between sixty hertz and five k. Yep. And you know that's a that's the black album bass drum sound. That's that's, that's not my bag. <laughs> <Right>? Sure, sure. <laughs> well, whatever you're doing, man, works. I mean, your drums. I mean, you also use A and F. They were actually the drums we used for our our booth at Nam. Yeah, Anything cool. sounds good on an ANF kit. That was that was actually the biggest thing for me with going to ANF because I mean I didn't I don't need to be with a drum company at all. Mm-hmm. But what I did need, and very much at the time that that Rami first approached me, I needed some inspiration. I need I needed I needed some some new toys that were going to behave differently. Sure. And it's not like the stuff I had before couldn't do different shit to what I was doing with it, but you just kind of get in a particular groove and, and you assign a role to the instruments you have and it's kind of harder to break out from that and try new things with them because you know they do a particular thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the A&F stuff, I got a bunch of drums. I got a bunch of snares first before any of the actual toms and, and bass drums rocked up. I started tuning and I tuned a couple of them sort of the same way that I tune that I had been tuning a bunch of my other snares, and I just went, nah, it's not it. And mm-hmm. then I just messed around with them. I spent days on these things, and I just I found little quirks, and I went, ah, oh, that is exactly what I needed. And it was just such an eye-opening thing, man. It was just, yeah, those drums have been such a pleasure to record. I literally have not, like, um, you know, I've still got uh, a vintage Sonal kit and a 60s Ludwig kit and a few other bits and pieces laying around. I literally haven't put up any of the other drums since I got any of the ANF stuff on any sessions on anything at all. It's been, yeah, it's been rad. Well, they sound good and they're aesthetically pleasing too. So it's, uh, they really are. My God. Um, all right, well let's, uh, yeah. Number two. Right. You know what? Let's go, let's go things that I have a few more specifics for. Okay. So drain you by Nirvana, man, this, this tune has just one very specific thing, which I think is, I, I, I doubt it was even considered, but mm. I think it's a pure stroke of genius. And yeah, I'll, <laughs> just basically from the top of the tune, just, oh, sure, just yeah, that yeah. first, the intro and the first groove. All right, all right. One baby, two, another says I'm lucky to meet you. I'm talking what you think this is about me. It is. Yeah. 
so the thing, <laughs> I don't know why this tickles me so much, but the thing I love so much about that drum part is the fact that he didn't come in on the and four where the, where the distortion kicks in. Sure, yeah, yeah. And it's one of those things where, like, in my head I've built it up to, like, they all sat around in the studio with Butch going, don't know about the intro of this tune, guys. You know, like, it's a little something generic, about that yeah, yeah. one's yeah. not hitting. And then, you know, it was this stroke of genius. It was like, oh, I just won't intro the drum part. But I'm sure that didn't happen at all. I'm pretty sure instinctually Dave Grohl knows how to play a drum part. But yeah. it's just something so beautiful about the intro being that guitar tone. And, I mean, that record is full of just rag guitar tones Mm -hmm. and then the guitar distortion kind of kicks in harder on the and for and but dave kicks in on the one and then when he kicks in and this is the lesson that the biggest lesson that i've learned that i've taken from dave Grohl and i've been listening well i started listening to nirvana when i was like probably nine 94 Mm -hmm. um and he would solidify a part from the get-go and that's the part yeah. And it's just rock solid and it doesn't waver. And it's not it's not a drum part in the sense that, you know, he's finding these little spaces to put little nuanced things. He's literally just going, here's the drums, this is how it goes, song mm-hmm. done. And it's just so beautiful. And especially that groove, every bar starts with the double crash. Yep. Hats are on quarters and it's the same thing, every single bar. And it's just so perfect. We actually had... It's a saying that we have in the studio every time we're recording anyone, uh, you know, anything, any rock drummer or kind of drummer from like a, a hardcore band or anything like that, and they're doing something kind of mid-tempo, it's always, what would Dave Grohl do? And I used mm-hmm. to have a sign. I used to have a sign that I would hold up <laughs> to the window of the live room, just WWDGD, because it's just <laughs> such a great example. And I have one, one like young kid from a hardcore band, and it was kind of that mid-tempo kind of bro-y hardcore stuff. And... um I said to him, like, just think, like, what would Dave Grohl do? Like, he wouldn't do weird little linear thing, ride bell, cymbal grab, then go to the next section. He would just go, flam, next section. And that is infinitely tougher. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, but, you know, I just don't think Nirvana's really appropriate to what we do. And I'm like, well, that's what you're dead wrong. It's, <laughs> it is <laughs> remarkably appropriate to everything. <laughs> yeah, no rock band should ever say that sentence. <laughs> you, just, you can't. They, they were just so important. And the reason they were so important was that everything was in its right place without sounding generic or stale whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, man, just I adore that record. That song and also uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit are a great example of how he does the double crash on the downbeats, but he does that, it's like a nuanced millisecond pause. Do, da, do, do, da, da, do. It's just, it solidifies it and gives it the separation it needs from. Yep. And you know what? I reckon it's kind of like that John Stania thing that he was doing with Battles where he had the crash like Mm. 20 feet off the ground. Yeah. Grohl always had his symbols pretty high and I feel like that becomes like an intrinsic part of his time is getting up to those symbols sure I love it I think it's amazing and yeah, yeah it does it, his ones never feel anxious and you yeah, can definitely beautiful. tell I mean that's Bonham is his you know idol and that's similar sure. to John so sure dude's genius <laughs> seems like a rag guy as well I would definitely I, I, he's one. He's on the list of people that I, I kind of need to meet before I die sure I've sure. just turned 35 so I haven't got a whole lot of time bro <laughs> <laughs> I'm 33 man I'm right behind you so um, I mean I could talk about Dave all day but let's yeah let's go to number Same. three alright um sorry 35 my eyesight's going my list of notes is much further away than it would have appeared five years ago um all right, let's go He Won't Go by Adele. Okay. Uh, it's Chris Dave. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah, right. I mean, do we even need to listen to it? We, we all know how good this is going to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is, uh, um, is, is there a certain spot you want me to... Yeah, go from three, uh, 321. He spoke
Now, yeah. this is one of those rare moments where, like, I dig that song. I didn't really care about that record all that much. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't really my vibe, but that's a, it's a great tune. There's a bunch of cool tunes on that record. That's one of those tunes where I go, I care about the drums a lot in this mm. song, probably more so than I care about the song. Um, it's just like a, it's a groove masterclass. It's Absolutely. Like, and it's restraint, um, not so much in like if he's hitting all the accents but how he's hitting the accents nothing gets boisterous no cymbals take off the i mean the the sounds are killer especially like the the first fill that kind of happens in that section before that sick like snare build triplet kick thing that happens um the <laughs> yeah. first fill that happens and you hear the floor tom and it's just like way over to the other side dead super low i mean it kind of sounds very much like it could have been a bass drum sort of mm-hmm. thing. Um, it's just it's just such a great, great performance, man. The whole tune is amazing. Groove is just... I mean, everyone knows Chris Dave's groove is just next level. And it's something that's similar to my... One of my choices when we first did this was Evil by Interpool, where Sam right. is very, very cognizant of the timing that his hi-hat is open. A lot of people just like, okay, there's a, there's a hi-hat bark... As long as I get that open on the downbeat or wherever I need to accent it, but he's like, there's times when he's doing a tss and a tss. There's like a thirty-second note, sixteenth note, eighth note, length. He's very, yeah. There's so much more nuance in that one little act. It's really funny you mentioned that. That's something that I've been paying a ton of attention to in my playing recently, and something I've been working on quite a bit. Yeah, is hi hat length. Just like, does this? You know, if I open this on the and before the next downbeat. Does it need to ring until the downbeat? Exactly. Or can it feel, especially with the kind of the kind of boom bappy sort of hip hoppy sounds that I've been doing, wanting the hi hat to sound like someone chopped the loop awkwardly, so it almost like glitches. It's like nice, yeah. Awkward, awkward length of hi hat open that literally does sound like the hi hat loop happens to have been edited in a very different place to the kick and snare loop. That's awesome. And it's yeah, it's a lot of fun and. So much more of a head fuck than, than you expect it's going to be, right? Sure, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I've yeah. spent hours laboring over that shit. It's ridiculous. Yeah, because that's not choking a cymbal with, like, you're, you're used to your hands doing something. It's your left foot talking to you. And that's so far away. <laughs> yeah. And it's also, you, you kind of have to use a different amount of pressure on your left foot for, like, the shorter hits. Because um, I found, like if I'm kind of putting a part together and I want to have like a longer hi-hat open, I'm a big fan of a hi-hat open on the end of the one instead of like playing multiple bass drums at the front of a bar. Mm. Um, just, it just doesn't feels like it doesn't cloud the one quite so hard. Um, especially with a longer bass drum tone. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you have to, it has to be a very, a different kind of openness for that than it does for like a short bark that kind of cuts off awkwardly or cuts off in a weird spot. And it's also almost how you actually hit the cymbal, whether or not you kind of chunk the edge or I find for like the really short kind of glitchy barks that I actually want to slap the top of the cymbal more to get like a much sharper sound and also not open it quite as much. Yeah. And I'm sure these are all things I'm stressing over unnecessarily, but like <laughs> they just, it, I feel like that shit makes the biggest difference. I've been having fun with talking about like clouding up the one I've, and I, I actually referenced it. It's also in that same song by Interpool where a lot of times Sam just across the whole catalog, he will not bring in the hi-hat till maybe beats three. He'll do something, then boom, tat, ding, ding, tat. He wants to mm-hmm. give that downbeat. It's whether it's a cymbal wash or just anything. He just, cause I mean, everyone goes, I have to hit that crash cymbal, then get there right away and keep that groove going. Yeah. It's like, you know, you don't <laughs> again, something that i was doing on 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 the session i was doing yesterday i'm just like why is this part not feeling like why is this part feeling so pushed at the front of the bar and mm-hmm. it was like kind of like a like a kind of rolly marchy snare part in this super dark kind of ambient tune that we've we've been going mental on this ep we've been working <laughs> on it's like we're throwing so much shit at it and it's it's been so much fun but yeah, it took it took me a minute to realize. I'm like, don't start the roll immediately off the the downbeat. Mm-hmm. Like, just play the crash, let that sizzle for a couple of beats. Come in on like, uh, I think I ended up actually coming in on the art of one to lead into the backbeat. Oh, cool. I, I feel like as drummers, we spend way too much time uh, worrying about the backbeat. The downbeat is like 
I don't know. I'm 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 always starting to feel like it's more important, <laughs> right? Well, like, and Benny, yeah, Benny Greb talks about that where he he like the having the metronome on the upbeat because a lot of people they're like, oh, this thing is here, so it's like already reinforced. You don't think about it, but if you have nothing and you have to make that feel good, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah I'll sure. take no credit for that. That was all Benny, but <laughs> but before we move on to the next one, I did speaking of hi hat stuff. So you have this cool thing you do. But you do this like slice with your hi hat into this really high pitched tune. Like, shading. I mean, I, yeah, I, <laughs> it's 100%. awesome. Thank you, dude. It's totally just a party trick. Like, it's so much <laughs> fun, and it's also really hard to insert into like because I, I just find myself now trying to insert it at the end of like a little turnaround or fill, so I can kind of like slam into a four and have a gap before I then restart the groove. Yeah. Um, I 100% stole it from Lionel Lewis. I saw oh, okay. him do it one time in one video and just went, greatest thing anyone's ever done. It's mine. <laughs> I've got to keep using that. And and I, like normally when if people ask me about it, like on Instagram or whatever, I normally say, I stole it from Lionel Lewis. This is, this is not my thing. Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, it's just, I don't know. It's just a fun thing. It's actually surprisingly tricky. And the hardest thing about it, I find myself a lot of the time, if I'm playing like a high-pitched um, snare um, but I'm trying to, you know, like I want the high pitch snare, but I also kind of want the fatness of the backbeat without quite so much of the overtone. I play the stick backwards. Mm. Um, it doesn't work very well at all when you've got the stick backwards because you need, you kind of need the tip to grab at the yeah, end yeah. of the, at the end of the swipe. Oh, so sure. I've, I'm, I've been, I've actually spent like uh, probably like 15 minutes on it the other day trying to like figure out if I can make it sound better with the, with the butt end of the stick. Yeah, it just wasn't wasn't working. So I've just got to get way better at flicking the stick around real quick. I think. <laughs> <Add> <laughs> yeah, it's just a fun trick. trick, man. I just like I spend a lot of time now figuring out how to make my drum sounds um, occupy more space in terms of their length, as opposed to in terms of playing more hits. Mm. Um, and that's that's one of those things, like trying to have like a legato note on a drum. And that, that that kind of yeah, it it kind of works on the same same sort of thing. Like instead of playing like, um, you know, like a little sort of five stroke roll, which would kind of like into the one or into the backbeat, I want it to be more of a yeah. So it's it just has that slightly legato thing, and it's also a very electronic sound. You know, it sounds sounds like a reverse snare reverb or reverse sing, uh, cymbal. So yeah, it's awesome. Go go check it out, guys. Hey y'all, I wanted to, <laughs> I can't say, I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely, it's loud, and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston, actually, this is why it's called the Ocean Patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his, his, you know, where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with the drum. And it was, it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful. And he actually let me use it on an Eve 6 tour and I didn't keep it and I regretted it ever since then just because I was trying to pinch pennies at the time and I just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co the instagram's just at vessel drum co and check it out it's amazing it's beautiful sounds great bye um thank you all right, so num yeah, number number four. All right. Let's go with uh, The Package by A Perfect Circle. Mm, is that uh, Josh? Josh, yeah. 
one of the greatest. So, I mean, the whole intro, but basically the whole top of the tune, the kind of percussive thing he's doing, I absolutely adore. That goes for ages, though, so you can probably skip to, like, 30 seconds in and have a bit of a listen to that for a bit. But then from 4.23 onwards, there's there's just some very perfect snare fills. Uh, yeah, let me start with uh, 30 seconds-ish, and then we'll jump to the, the four-minute mark. Gosh, man! That so that first snare feel that da 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 da. I've yeah. tried to I've tried to insert that feel into so many tunes. <laughs> <laughs> I do. See, I won't I won't release this part of it. You you can continue. Right. <laughs> yeah. So basically, I've spent the last thirty years plagiarizing Josh Freese. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder if those those rhythms were the guitar just went off his take or if that was a part that they talked about first. So I'm not sure what record it was. It may have been the first album, Murder Noms, but I'd heard that basically the drums that are on the record were Josh's roughs that were like kind of the pre-prod things that were just like a one and done kind of vibe. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that's what ended up on the record. That I, I, I have no, yeah, I have no valid, um, you know, I don't know if there's any validity to that whatsoever, but I mean, it wouldn't be surprising, right? Like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that dude can play a song from start to finish. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. That the intro section of that song is. It was one of the one of the first moments where I started to kind of take notice of drum production, because mm. um, it kind of as that part progresses from the more percussive thing, he goes to playing it on a snare without the wires on. Um, and the the sound's really quite claustrophobic, and there's like a real kind of pokiness to the attack of the kick. It all feels very close, and it really like it really complements the vocal part as well. Um, and he goes through that part, the the percussive thing where he moves from rims to to snare and whatnot. He kind of adds in the hat keeping time, and he builds it like ever so slightly, but the part doesn't change a hell of a lot. All he does is just ramp and you know peak and trough the dynamics of the part mm-hmm. and i just thought it was such a great thing and I, I kind of i do fairly vividly remember kind of really analyzing that part and really just being like right in it and just rewinding to the top of that tune over and over and over again um just like again a solidified part that doesn't really waver mm-hmm. texturally it kind of changes dynamically it kind of ebbs and flows but it is a part that's just, yeah. it's there from the top and it keeps going until the song needs an actual change. Mm-hmm. And I just love that shit, man. I think people spend so much time and me, myself as well, like I'm super guilty of this, of just thinking, all right, new section, new part. And yeah. It's just, just not the case. Like just, you know, like certain tunes, you're just like, man, if I, if I could do absolutely nothing and it still sounded like there was drums on this record, that's exactly what needs to happen. Well, and to piggyback off that, I, I think I'm right on this. I think he was on the song. <laughs> this is funny. I'm referencing this from your awesome <laughs> suggestion to this <laughs> Skater Boy by Avril Lavigne. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty sure, sure that was. I heard him that he didn't even know. He just recorded it. Then six months later, he heard it on the radio. And he's like, oh, that's that song I was recording. But that song is just boom, tat, boom, boom, tat, boom. Almost the whole song. Back in high school, before I even knew who Josh Fries was, really, I remember just that that was such an easy part, but he just stuck to it, and it was so badass, and yep. made that otherwise pop song such a a thing I would love to drum along to. There was another tune that I heard uh, in that kind of ilk, you kind of Avril Lavigne kind of vibe. I remember hearing it on the radio some years ago and going, that's Josh Fries. 
and it's not like he wasn't doing anything. Was it Evanescence? Was nothing... No, no, okay. it wasn't. No, I'm not 100% sure I've ever made it through a listen long enough. Um, <laughs> no shade, sorry. No, um, no. <laughs> little shade. I, I don't know, a little bit, quite a bit of shade. It's, it's positively dark in here. Um, oh, fuck, I can't, I, can't, I can't remember what song it was. You know, it was like a, yeah. it was like a, that kind of thing, you know, like from that era. But I remember hearing it on the radio and going, I just, I know that's Josh Freese. And I'm pretty sure I went and looked it up and it was Josh Freese. And like I say, it wasn't, there was no part about it that was like, I I feel like I've heard him do that thing before. It just, it just kind of sounded and felt like Josh Freese. Yeah. And yeah. And I I, I remember being like pretty stoked that it was actually him going, fuck yes, that's so cool that he's doing pretty bog standard session drumming stuff, but it sounds like him. And that's, I mean, that's such a goal to aspire to, which is crazy hard. Yeah, yeah, I don't think there's ever. I don't think he's he's ever walked out of a session not giving it his all. Oh, a hundred percent. No, I mean yeah. he's an, a professional for sure. But it's also like, yeah, even in the most weird songs, you're like, he still killed it. I mean, he's he still gave it like he, that was his favorite drum part to play in that moment of all time. Yeah, this is the thing. I mean, this is the thing with playing, you know, on other people's tunes. It's like you there's a pretty good chance you might hate the tune. Yeah. But you are still in the studio playing drums, you know? Yeah. Like, you're not shoveling manure, you know? Like, you're not, <laughs> yeah, you're not unclogging someone's toilet, you yeah. know? All, like, very noble professions that I just don't want to do because I'd much rather be playing drums, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, so, at the end of the day, even if you're recording a shit tune, which is going to happen, yeah, 100% going to happen. You can't like everything you do, but you are still in a studio playing drums and hopefully getting some sort of remuneration for it. You know, like, you, I think that's a good enough reason to do it well. I'm going to assume that word meant get paid for it because <laughs> you're a lot smarter than me, but that was a nice word. <laughs> uh, look, let's, let's say I'm going to assume that as well now because I'm second-guessing it. <laughs> All right, let's see. Uh, I'm trying to fit in some... Okay, so one of my favorite things you do, you do this like upside-down snare thing a lot. What's, what's the origin of that? That <laughs> plays in so beautifully into the next tune. Um, <laughs> well, there we go. Well done. Um, what is the origin of that? I don't know where I saw it or if I even saw it. Or, I mean, that probably, it, it definitely would have kind of fit in around the time that I was kind of getting pretty sick of all the drum sounds that I was pulling and playing. So that's yeah. probably a very big part of it. Or maybe I just felt like going through countless numbers of snare bottom heads for no good reason. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I just felt my wallet was just way too heavy that week. Yeah, and I thought, yeah, you know yeah. what? I got to throw all this shit away. Gosh, um, we all know what that feels like. Yeah. Oh, it's, I mean, <laughs> tell you what, back problems. Um, <laughs> fuck, that'd be nice. Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure where it came from, but it does play beautifully in the next thing. So um, I think I I just tried it and I just went, that sounds way more like a sample than a snare drum. Do you ever mess with different, like a, like a batter side head, like a single ply 10 mil, or is it always just a diplomat, you know? The best results I've had from that particular technique were actually, I think it's pretty much irrelevant what drum it would be on. But I was using one of the Evans Rezo 7, uh, okay. like the 7 seven mil Rezo heads. It's kind of like a diplomat weight. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, coated, they're coated, the Rezo 7s. One of them uh, without any other heads. So it's just a single-sided drum. Oh, cool. Um, so kind of like a you know, setup, kind of like a timbali, but you know, playing on the snare side with the wires right there on the head. Yeah. And that was a, that was a really cool sound, and it felt very... It made me kind of want to play dance hall beats. Like it just kind of had that. It just, yeah, it felt, it felt like that. It was kind of sick. Sure. Um, and also you could mic it straight up into the shell. Oh, um, yeah, perfect. Directly under the snare wires. And it just had like this pressure about it that was amazing for gating, <laughs> which is it's something that I'm, I'd pay a lot of attention to. Um, it was amazing for gating and it just, yeah, had this. Um, an immediacy and like a real kind of punch about it that wasn't particularly bottom heavy and wasn't like a, a real sharp kind of clicky top end. It was just like, it just kind of hit you. That was, that was, that was one of the better results. But since I got, uh, the little, I've got a little 12 by three, uh, rude boy from A and F and that's got the internal wires Mm. 
and I actually kind of get that same vibe by putting turning the actual snare wires off and putting the internal wires touching the bottom head and then playing the batter head. Okay. And like it, I remember like when I first got it, I hadn't even really used it, and I had someone come in to track some track some drums on the tune. I was recording for him, and I showed him a few of the snares, and he's like, "Man, that sounds like a sample." And I'm like. Yeah, it really does, doesn't it? <laughs> like yeah. since then, I'm just like, yeah, it sounds exactly like a sample. That's what, kind of what I use for all that stuff. Um, and yeah, that kind of has that similar vibe where it's not particularly snary in terms of having like a nice kind of decay or, and it doesn't feel like you're choking the drum out trying to get like a really tight snare response. It just kind of, it's just what it sounds like. Yeah. Um, I, I've been meaning to go back to the... Uh, to the upside down snare thing. I think I think I need to get something from A and F. Like maybe like a ten inch would be really fun for that kind of vibe. A ten yeah, inch maybe have them make you something that has a snare bed on the top and bottom and just, you know, a double yeah. snared you know, something. Just for brilliant. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> um all right, well yeah, let's see what, what this ties into. Now the the build up is amazing. <laughs> Um, so it's Skater Boy by Avril Lavigne. No. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Hood Politics by Kendrick Lamar. This record, uh, so it's off, uh, To Pimp a Butterfly. You'll hear the groove immediately and know exactly why it ties in. I've been A1 since day one, you niggas boo-boo. Your own boy, your black that you're from, boo-boo. Little hoes you went to school with, boo-boo. Baby mama and your new bitch, boo-boo. We was in the hood, 14 with the deuce deuce. 14 years later, going hard like we used to on the dead homies. On the dead homies. Is that so you? That, on, that sounds like you playing that part, man. <laughs> <laughs> that, so that part, that was a weird part. Because the way I came to the thing that I kind of do now that I'm sort of, I'm not trying to specialize in, but that I just enjoy doing. It's weird. It's not because I was listening to that stuff at all. Mm. And for the most part, I kind of still don't. Um, I came to it from like a completely different, like I was just messing around with shit, trying to combine like different kind of grids. And it was almost more of like a coordination exercise. And so when I first started doing it, you know, trying to sort of swing something and something else was straight and, and that kind of stuff, it was very not musical and very kind of rigid and and things were kind of rubbing against each other in a manner that wasn't complimentary. Um, you know, like the, whatever I was doing that was trying to stay straight would kind of really start to glitch out and go to shit whenever whenever what I was doing was trying to that was trying to swing would get too close to it. And like, you know, it was just it was a really ugly thing, but that's kind of how <laughs> I came across it. Yeah. Um and so I'd heard like I'd started hearing and listening to a little bit of your kind of more neo-soul stuff and your kind of future jazz, kind of like hired Coyote and that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I love it, but I can't listen to it. You know what I mean? Like, it's just it's just like a little bit too much for me. And it's maybe, I think it's maybe because I'm just, like, I've never really clicked with jazz. Yeah. Um, and I wish I had. I feel like I would have so much more facility if I'd actually worked on jazz. <laughs> You're uh, preaching the choir, man. Yeah. 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 I, I just prefer it like a, a solid hooky chorus. Um, <laughs> yeah. So so I kind of started hearing that stuff and I'm like, right. Okay. So there's the thing that I've kind of stumbled across myself that I've been working on. It's definitely present in this kind of stuff. And, you know, going back to, you know, the D'Angelo tunes and, and um, Erica Badu and, and stuff like that. Um, but I still wasn't really listening to that stuff. And then I'd been dabbling with different kind of hip-hop tunes and listening to stuff. And then I heard To Pimp a Butterfly and I went, fuck, this is the hip-hop record that I've been waiting for to properly get me into this genre. And then I was listening to the record and I heard that tune and I went, oh, that's this is exactly what I have been trying to do, uh, yeah. Yeah, dude. It was yeah, seriously. Uh, you know, I don't have a religious bone in my body, but I'm pretty sure someone divine <laughs> delivered that to me on a silver platter. Um, yeah, so like that was like it was like a moment where I just went, ah, shit. That's how you do it, and <laughs> you don't fuck around with every bar. You d you don't add something new. You don't take something away. It's like this is the beat. This is how it goes. It has an inherent feel. And we loop that feel. So no matter how wonky it might be, 
it feels amazing because it's the same thing every single time. And yeah. I love that. I mean, I think that's kind of a running theme. <laughs> Is that like, <laughs> I like a solidified part. Um, I think I need that to kind of organize my brain. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And then there was a kind of an interesting story. I've never once done a drum cover or ever really wanted to, but I was screwing around with the upside, sound, uh, upside down snare thing. And I'd been listening to that Kendrick record over and over and over again. And I went, oh, shit, that's the whole politics snare sound. So I spent like a couple of hours, like I kind of I, I tracked the groove and then I spent a couple of hours kind of messing with a mix, trying to get it to sound like it. And I got it to a point where I'm like, this kind of sounds quite a bit like the record. And I was really stoked with it. Uh, and then I posted it on Instagram. I'm like, I don't do covers, but I love this groove. And I, I was really happy with these sounds. This is you know, my version of hood politics. And like, I actually went back and looked at it a little while ago. And I'm like, yeah, fuck, I was so, I was so far off. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> Sonically, it was okay. Playing wise, I, I didn't understand the nuances in the playing quite so much. I knew mm. the hi-hat was late and I knew the hi-hat was swung, but it's really hard to, so, I mean, to really break that groove down, the kick is just one E pretty straight. Okay. The sna snares on two and four. And the hi-hat is displaced by a certain amount and then also swung on top of that displacement. <laughs> but the hardest thing about that is that when you displace the hi-hat, when you hear it against like the downbeat or the backbeat, it kind of feels a bit like a flam. So you, you don't really, uh, you're not really aware of the maybe subdivision that's implied by the displacement. Mm. But when it's on its own, on the upbeat, you start to become aware of, okay, this isn't sitting on the end. This is sitting somewhere after the end. Is it sitting on the art of the triplet? Or is it, you know, like it, it becomes like a weird middle ground where you kind of just have to really feel it out. So learning how to displace and then imply some swing on top of that where it's not a shuffle. It's still somewhere in between, but if you were to put it on a shuffle grid, it's probably pretty close to being on the triplet because it's displaced and mm. slightly swung. So it's like, it's this whole thing that I spend way too much time obsessing over, but it just, I just went, ah, oh, shit, that's how you do it. And why have I been fucking around with all this stuff? Why have I been trying to like, all right, so if I do a septuplet here and then a quintuplet here, and then I kind of imply this and then I'll shuffle this bit and play this bit straight. And I just went, no, fuck, that's, that's ridiculous. That groove... Is just sick, and it's super minimal, and it has that one nuance thing, which is the hi hat placement. So I think I, I wiki Wikipedia'd it before because I, I was like, someone had told me that it was Spot C right on that. I tune. was going to ask you who. Yeah, do you know who it is? Yeah. Yeah. Um, someone actually commented that on the video, and then he saw it and commented on it and tagged Terrace Martin who was one of the producers who was like a bullshit sax player who produced a bunch of stuff for Kendrick and that. And he commented on it. I'm like, you guys were not meant to see this shit. Like, like, this is, I, was like, I was like mortified. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is, no, yeah. don't, don't, please don't watch this. Um, so I, I think he did the drums for it because he commented something like, oh, that's how I did it kind of thing. And I was pretty fucking chuffed with that, but I was also, you know, horribly embarrassed that they'd seen it. Oh but then gosh. when I Wikipedia it before, it says he played keyboards on that track, not drums. So, I mean, Wikipedia is not 100% accurate. So yeah. I feel like if anyone was going to do that, Spot would do that and it would be that sick. Yeah, I mean, I need to listen to that record more. I mean, I'll be the Dude. first to say that I don't actually listen to much Kendrick, but... it's That record in particular, I think, is a really good gateway drug for okay. people that maybe don't listen to hip-hop um, because it there are so many moments on it that have like a really live band feel. And like mm -hmm. a funk feel and, and, a, and a soul, neo-soul feel. Yeah. As opposed to like, like his more recent stuff is definitely less of a live kind of organic feel. But, which I, I feel like if it had been anyone else, I wouldn't have appreciated as much. But I listen to that record so much. I'm just like, yeah, this, this Kendrick dude might be a genius. <laughs> I just kind of like loved everything he did from that point onwards. So, so I'm, I'm, I appreciate his newer stuff a whole lot more than I probably would have if I hadn't gotten into him via that record. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that kind of drumming is similar with jazz. I don't, you know, like you were saying, just the one and the E of one and backbeat and it's the hi-hat, but you spent multiple hours figuring out Maybe if you zoom out, a seemingly simple esque beat, but when you get in there, it's like, no, this is, this is crazy, yeah. you know. 
Yeah. And I think that's that's why I haven't gotten into it because I'm like, God, that seems so difficult to get it that nuanced. Well, it's this type of drumming that has like a bit of a mysticism around it. Mm. Um, because I think it's one of those things that's never really been approached uh, on an educational platform. Yeah. You know, people talk about feel all the time, but like they also quite often say, oh, you know, feel is like you're kind of born with good feel or you're not. And it's just like, well, that's, that's clearly bullshit because when I was I, born, I couldn't play drums, so I had no feel, right? <laughs> like, I'm with like, you, So man. obviously yeah. I learned it at some point. Um, and I'm still learning it and still falling flat on my face more regularly <laughs> than I care to admit. Um, and so, like, I, don't, I just feel like it hasn't been um, put out there as, like, an easy acce- easily accessible way of approaching a drum set. Um, but like any other facet of playing an instrument, if you just apply a couple of small limitations and a couple of small rules to it and work within those confines, it's super easy. Mm-hmm. It requires that you have like a pretty good grasp on playing straight time and shuffle time yeah. um, to be able to kind of judge whether where you're sitting on the, either of those grids at any given time. Like it, it, I wouldn't... If you're just starting to learn drums, don't learn drums that way, right? <laughs> like, sure. Like, get good at the basics first, which is, <laughs> obviously, you should do that. But, yeah, it's not like, it's there's no mysticism about it. There's nothing esoteric about it whatsoever. It's like, you can apply a small number of limitations and rules to it and start to refine that feel. And... Yeah, pretty pretty easily actually. I've done quite a few lessons with people, and and like it it always takes a minute to click. <laughs> like like yeah. it's like all you gotta do, man, is just don't play your hi hat at the same time as your snare. Play it a little bit late, and like fifteen minutes later, they just go, I don't. Why? No. <laughs> <laughs> Does not compute. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's it's kind of in a lot of ways, it's the exact opposite of what you've tried your entire drumming journey to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's not a super difficult thing. It just requires, I think, um, which I think, and this is why I've gravitated towards it, is because I get very neurotic and and I sort of really pour over the minutia of these things. Um, it requires an attention to detail and like a real constant analysis and reference of like, okay, where am I sitting now? Mm-hmm. Like, did that last bar... Do I remember how bar one felt? Because bar two maybe felt a bit different. And yeah, yeah. so it's, it's that kind of stuff. And I, that's the shit that I enjoy, man. I've got to say, honorable mentions, because I never got to them. Please do, please do, yeah. I basically wanted to listen to Super Unknown from start to finish, because Matt Cameron is, I think, one of the greatest to ever do it. Okay. And I would have actually done one of those songs as the first thing, but I couldn't pick one. <laughs> it's like I just straight up couldn't pick anything. I'm like, Black Hole Sun was kind of like my introduction to it, so I should probably pick that. And I'm like, but then the groove from the day I tried to live is like the best thing that's ever. So please go and listen to Matt Cameron playing with Soundgarden and Pearl Jam, but mostly Soundgarden for me. Yeah. Uh, and also, what did I miss? Oh, and then Silverchair, Ben Gillies from Silverchair, who were an Australian band who were like huge when they were really young and then I think maybe less kind of huge internationally, but still like a massive band. They were like, when I was nine, they were like 15 and they got okay. huge when they were 15. And so I was like, these are like, these are kids too. So, so I was like, this is what I need to do. So he was like my favorite drummer for like a really long time. They were my favorite band for a really long time as well. So I couldn't pick a song of theirs either. So I just skipped it. Oh, yeah, and Jason McGurr as well. I've been, like, listening to Def Cab for Cutie, like, on repeat. He, I think he is, like, the uh, the embodiment of, like, sounds helping to dictate a part. Um, 100%. Because his, yeah, his parts are just so well-crafted and 
there's never I've never heard one of the parts where I wasn't like I don't know whether the sounds or the part came first and I fucking love that he's the nicest guy in the world we have a, a, a cloth head called the quesadilla that we use yeah. um, and he he got it at Nam and he was so excited about it and me and me and Chris were just like Jason's excited about something <laughs> sound wise that that we thought of in our heads our little noggins it was because um, yeah I'm with you man his his sonic choices are unbelievable And the first year I went to Nam, I was standing uh, just outside the little cafeteria area, mm-hmm. and I saw I saw Jason walking out like he'd just paid for some food or whatever, and I spotted him, and I'm like, I think maybe he follows me on Instagram because I wouldn't normally like cold call someone and just be like, hey man, I fucking love what you do. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe there might be some recognition, so I'm like, I should go. Oh, fuck, I gotta go and talk to him, and I was like. And as I went to step off to go and talk to him, someone grabbed me who I knew from a company and they started talking to me and I'm like, I do really uh. want to talk to you, <laughs> but like one of my drumming heroes is like right fucking there. And then I talked to this dude for like 30 seconds and he was gone. I was like, ah, <laughs> I really, really wanted to meet him. But anyway, I probably would have just like, you know, just been a blubbering mess anyway. So it probably worked out better for me. Where, where can people get a hold of you? I want you to do a little self-promotion here. All right, cool. Um, best place to hit me is on my Instagram shoot me a DM um, and I will get back to you eventually <laughs> I've had like a bit of a pile of message requests sitting there for a minute now um, I've been slowly working through them uh, Brody Simpson drums mm-hmm. on Instagram so I do yeah I do zoom lessons I don't like I don't normally do like regular lessons with people normally it's like they come and see me like a couple of times to sort of work on the things that they see me doing on Instagram basically sure I really enjoy that, man. It's like, I feel like I've been doing like quite a few Zoom sessions recently as well. And I'm like, I feel like I enjoy doing it via Zoom more than in person. (laughs) I'm with you, man. I'm with you. (laughs) There's just something so, especially with the session thing, it's like, you're just more aware that like, you're literally on the clock, like you're watching the time tick away. So it's like, you just go, all right, cool. Next part. Sweet. Yep. That's how that'll go. I didn't quite get that. You know what? I'll track that again once we hang up the call. And then, and then, like, you know, 30 minutes later, you're like, all right, we've tracked that song. And I just go and put the files together and send it off. It's beautiful. So, yeah, yeah the, the lessons are kind of like that. Um, and, yeah, people have been really coming to me about the kind of the different groove and feel things, which I love teaching. Um, I think most people are kind of surprised at the basics that it, that it generally goes back to. It's almost like you... It's not the same as like a rock groove where it's like, all right, so you're going to play these ones here, these ones here, and these ones here. It's like you kind of need to go over a few kind of basic concepts and work them up at a, to a certain point to develop the tools to kind of understand the weird displaced thing enough to play it to where it doesn't sound like you're just playing out of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it's an interesting process, man. It's one that I've really started figuring out over the last six months. Cause just because people have been asking me about it a little lot. So. Well, the thing I love, too, about your playing, I mean, your, your left hand is... The, 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 the control you have on your left hand is, is huge. It's definitely... It's funny, the last few times I've been having drummers on, I've just been like... So I was talking to Matt in class, and I was like, I was looking at your left index finger, and I was like, it comes across <laughs> like... I really focus on the drummers, like, what's that doing? What's that doing? But, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, your technique is top-notch, man. It's, it's really inspiring, so... Oh, thank you so much. That you know what? So much of my lessons go back to controlled strokes like that. Like it's literally should. it's man, the dynamics. The dynamics are absolutely everything and dynamics are achieved through controlled strokes. And it's like yep. repeat like it's dynamics and repeatability of dynamics is that's that's a groove basically. <laughs> like it feels good. It feels and I, I think the main way I came across this and I fuck I've said this to so many people is like editing drummers that I've recorded. And, like, you know, it's a tune where it's like, all right, I'm just going to hard grid these drums. And you hard grid them, you just go, still kind of sounds out of time. And it's purely down to the dynamics. That's interesting. Yeah, well, yeah. that's why <laughs> that's why a lot of times when I'm gridded out, I'm like, 
your grid's wrong. It's no, I just yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just still. You got not one that of those good. old school metronome grids. <laughs> it's just yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Well, uh, yeah. Thanks for being on the show again, and I'll I'll drop in all that audio and <laughs> have a good day, man. Thank you. Thanks, man. You too. That's the show. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out bigfatsnaredrum.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at bigfatsnaredrum. The audio you're hearing was edited with Isotope RX Audio Editor. It's magic. So go check that out at isotope.com. Cheers. <laughs>